We will be starting in on page 47 today, the one that looks like this. I only have three copies. I only have two copies. I only have one copy. All right. I, we started off with 30 copies uh, last week. Oh, yeah, there we go. And actually, I think today, if you've just got some blank paper or some sort of scrap paper somewhere, you should be able to replicate what we're doing today. It's uh, mostly going to be this diagram that you see on the front is what we'll cover. Um, We're actually going to start in Matthew 16, though. Matthew 16 is where we'll begin. Um, We will not uh, have a lot of Bible today, warning, because we have to do some history before we get into more Bible. Um, So... We will start with Matthew 16, though, and um, read a passage there before we get into this history stuff. How about I pray, and then we'll um, get into it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day you've made, for the precipitation outside and all the ways that you provide for us and protect us. God, we ask that today... You would bless this time together that our fellowship would be pleasing to you, that you would be honored in thought, word, and deed, and that you would help us to have a greater view, a more grand view of your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are continuing in our study of the church. We started a couple of weeks ago, and we started with Israel. Because if you don't know who Israel is, what Israel is, you're not going to understand what the church is. You kind of have to have, in this theological study, you have to have that foundation of Israel before you get into the church. And so we talked about how Israel began and the promises they were founded on. Then we talked about that time of transition where John the Baptist comes along and he's baptizing people and says there's going to be another baptism, and it's Jesus' baptism. And we contrasted Israel with the church on page 46. There's that box on page 46 where we went through these different elements of what makes up Israel and what makes up the church and how there's certainly a contrast between the two. Very, very important to recognize and understand that. Well, now, starting on page 47, we are getting into detailed elements of what the church is. Okay, so we've given you a theological overview. Now we're getting into the weeds with detail as to what the church is. And to start us off, here's a really long sentence from John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew about the church. The church exists to, and I I bolded that and italicized that at the beginning, because anytime you see a, a statement like that, that means it's a purpose statement. Why does something exist? The church exists to display the wisdom and mercy of God in this age by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world so that sinners from every ethnic background might be rescued from the domain of darkness and ushered into the kingdom of God and so that unbelieving Israel might be provoked to jealousy and repentance. Long sentence. Who could diagram that sentence for us? And that's actually what this chart is on uh, page 47. We're going to diagram the sentence. No, that's not what that is. That's uh, something else. But that's a long sentence, and you see different elements about why the church exists. But see, at the very beginning here, we're displaying God's wisdom and mercy 
and we're doing so by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. That's key. That's central. That's, that's foundational to what the church is. Okay? And so we're going to be exploring that in the coming weeks as we consider more and more of the implications of this, what the church is. Um, now let's do this slide, then we'll look at Matthew 16. So when you see that word Catholic, sometimes you'll jump to the idea of Roman Catholic. Big hat, dress, Pope guy with the staff who's like telling people to kiss the ring, unless it's COVID season or cold and flu season. Did you guys see that? Where there was a long line of people coming to greet the Pope and he wasn't letting them kiss his ring. They would like bend over and he'd pull back. It's very awkward. It's, it's kind of hilarious. Someone should put like the, uh, what is it, uh, what's the music? Uh, is Benny, what's this guy's name? Benny Hinn? Is that the comedian? Benny Hill. Yeah. Anyway, whoever did the music, no, 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 no. They should set that video to that because they're just like bending over and he's like, Whoa, and he like slaps their hand too. It's pretty aggressive. And then he says later, it was because of germs. All right. So get that out of your mind. The word Catholic itself is a good, good word. It comes from the Greek word katholu, meaning whole or entire. And the early church fathers used this word to speak of the collective of God's people around the world, which can also be called the universal or invisible church. And we'll get more into that on page 48. But when we say the Catholic church in this sense, we're not talking about Rome. We're not talking about popes. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about the whole of God's people, all people who believe in the name of Jesus, in the gospel, they are members of the body of Christ worldwide, okay? Um, well, let's go to Matthew 16 now and look at what Jesus said about this Catholic church, okay? Not Roman Catholic, but this universal church or this invisible church. Would someone read verses 13 through 20, Matthew 16, 13 to 20? Can read that for us. Stan, thank you. Uh, Through 20. Okay, one of those passages where, you know, it takes a sermon to think through this completely. But if you hone in on verse 18, there's that promise that we looked at last week. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the other part of that promise is that the gates of hell or Hades will not overpower it. So if you were to put that promise in your own words, if you were to articulate that in your own way, summarize that, what is Jesus promising here? What's, what's he saying is going to happen? Okay, so he's going to come back and inherit a church, which means that the church is going to be built while he's away, right? Jesus ascends to the Father after the resurrection, and he's been building his church. What about all that gates of Hades business? The gates of Hades will not overpower it or overcome it. What about that? Okay. Okay. And, and what's he saying won't happen? If you were to put it in your own words, what won't happen? Okay. Okay. You could almost say there won't be some sort of great apostasy. 
okay, right? To put it in our context, because of course, this is a conversation that comes up a lot with Latter-day Saints, is that there was a great apostasy, and the church failed. And there were like a thousand or more years where there was no church. Can you see that as a possibility based on this promise in verse 18? Not at all. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So this is a really, really good promise, isn't it? That Jesus is going to build his church and there will be success in his building of his church. There will not be failure. Jesus said, failure, not an option on the table. Hades is going to you know, put up defenses against the gospel, and those defenses will not stand. The church will be built. Okay, so I want you to have that in your mind as we go into this history lesson. Stan. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His time had not yet come, right? This is something that you see in his healings, too. That the lepers, he heals the lepers, and he gives a similar kind of instruction. It's all based on timing. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to have this in your mind that Jesus gives this promise as we go look at, at the history of the church Catholic. Because, let me tell you, church history is messy. And it's filled with not great things. Now, there are great things. But there are also a lot of not great things. And so you could be tempted as you go and read through history to think, see, Jesus was wrong when he said there was going to be success. But don't start thinking that. He was right. Okay? And we'll talk through that. So the church has been through much over the last two millennia, and this history lesson you're about to get is very, very curtailed. All right? This is basically a timeline. We're going to start with 33 AD, and I think that's first on there. Okay, 33 AD. And then we're going to end up at present day. So, <laughs> um, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be left out. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be summed up in just a couple of words. But this will give you a 100,000-foot view of church history. All right? Right, small. I'm going to warn you. This morning, I did this on my sheet as I followed along with this. And I thought, okay, I need to tell them. Right, small. All right. Here we go. So we start off with the church that Jesus promised he would build. We start off with the apostles and the generations that followed them. And things were going well, generally speaking, as far as truth being upheld and protected. The apostles, of course, were inspired by God to write Scripture. The apostles uh, wrote many of the letters that we have in the New Testament and there were issues in the churches, no doubt, but they were addressing those, and truth was being protected, and the church was growing. There were new churches popping up in cities uh, and spreading around the world, okay? At least the known world for them at that time. And so things were going pretty well. Even the generations that follow, we have uh, writings from the disciples of the disciples that are still around. So like Clement, Clement was someone who was discipled by the Apostle John. And we have some of his writings still. And you read through those, and it's like, okay, things are going pretty good. We have the Didache, which was an early church manual that is probably from the very last decade of the first century, somewhere between 90 AD and 100 AD. And they were, you know, keeping track of uh, certain things that should be done in the church. Now, there's some 
issues with that, but mostly it's like, hey, this is, things are going well, okay? Well, then you have at some point, you do have extra biblical traditions and false doctrine that begin to propagate. Now, this was already happening during the time of the apostles, but you have more and more influence uh, of these movements popping up as time goes along here. And like I just mentioned with the Didache, that early church manual, you start seeing some of that in there. Uh, for instance, when it talks about a communion, it says that no one should receive communion except those who have been baptized. Now, is that a, a decent rule of thumb that safeguards against some things? Yes. Is it also extra biblical? Yes. Uh, also in the Didache, it says baptism should always be by immersion in cold, running, live water. Is that a decent rule of thumb? Okay, sure. That should be stated as a preference, maybe, yeah. Is that extra biblical? Yes, it is, it is, okay? And so that's what I mean about, so there's some stuff in there, you know, it's like, it's kind of interesting. Well, over the course of time, more and more traditions like that start to pop up and start to have more and more authority, okay? So just so you know, as we go along the timeline, that's a really big factor, and you start to see that in the early church. Well, let's uh, jump up here where the line starts to go a bit vertical. In Mark, in 312 AD, you have Constantine. And in Constantine's uh, time here on earth, he had a lot of authority and influence. And in 312, he was converted, converted to Christianity. And think of how radical of a change this was for the early church. Because up until this point, was the church helped out by government or persecuted by government? Absolutely persecuted. They couldn't have their own property and buildings like we have today. They couldn't be out in the open. They couldn't have a uh, meet-you-at-the-poll day at their local high school so everyone can gather around and pray. There wasn't anything like that. It was persecution. The government explicitly hated Christianity. Well, Constantine undergoes a conversion, and now the government is on Christianity's side. So this is a big, major change in church history, massive change in church history. It's Constantine in 312. And it was under Constantine's direction that in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea was called. Now, you have to look up there how to spell Nicaea. It's a weird word, okay? The Council of Nicaea. That happened in 325 AD. Now, there will be some people that will tell you that that is when, you know, the, the church... Catholic, and they'll usually think the Roman Catholic Church, came under control of the Bible and they took out things that were supposed to be in the Bible and they inserted things that never should have been in the Bible and, you know, they've got devil horns and the room is smoky and all that stuff. That is not what happened in 325 at Nicaea. In fact, there are a lot of documents that you can look at that historically recount what happened at Nicaea. And the main thing that they were doing was confronting a guy named Arius. That's a guy's name, Arius. Arius was someone who taught a deficient view of the Trinity. He taught an erroneous and heretical view of the Trinity. Arius taught that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God. Well, we believe, based on what the Bible says, that Jesus is God, not a creation of God. And so, as these extra-biblical traditions and false doctrines get more and more prominent... What has to happen is Christians got to get together and talk about how are we going to articulate this? Because you can obviously throw out a list of Bible references and say, this is why you're wrong. 
that's totally fair to do that. But what's also helpful is to summarize what the Bible teaches in modern language. That's what I do every Sunday, right? When I give a sermon. And so the church would come together. And when I say the church, I'm talking about representatives from all kinds of biblical churches from all over. They would come together in Nicaea here and have multiple meetings to discuss how should we articulate what the Bible teaches about the Godhead. And that's what we get out of Nicaea is an articulation of the Trinity based on Scripture. So whenever I'm defending the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity to somebody, I'm not going to say, well, look, it was settled at Nicaea. Here's what they said. You're wrong because Nicaea said this. I'm not going to say that. But as I go to the Bible and say, well, look at this, look at this, look at this, I can also pull in what they said from Nicaea and say, here's how they summed this up. And it's helpful that way. It's like a, a helpful tool. It's not the authority like the Bible is, but it's a helpful tool. That's what happened at Nicaea. Okay. So good things still happened while the church began adding man-made traditions. So the man-made traditions, as they rose to the level of having authority over people, that's a bad thing. That's a, it's not a good thing that happened. However, in the midst of that bad stuff going on, there were some good things that happened too. And I would say the Council of Nicaea was a good thing. It's good for Christians to come together and to talk through issues and to come up with a way to articulate things biblically. I'll pause there and see if we got any thoughts or questions here as we consider this early church. Wow. Didn't expect that. But I'm kind of thankful. All right. Okay. All right, Evelyn. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. And eventually condemning areas, too. Yeah. So I'm a little fuzzy on my Arius history as far as was he a traveling preacher type guy. Um, I don't think that was the case. I don't think he was traveling around infecting churches. I think he was probably in one location, and his teaching was catching on from other churches. Because churches, when doing conferences is not anything new. Okay, And so there would be times when churches would get together, and so you'd have times where guys could speak, and a guy like Arius could speak and win people over to his view. Just like today, when you see like Joel Osteen's church full of people, and people who are influenced by him rise up and become teachers. Yeah. So it's helpful for Christians to come together and say, okay, biblically, how are we going to handle this? And that's what was happening there. Yes. Correct, because there were certainly other problems, right? This wasn't the only problem, but it had enough influence that they had to address that one. Yep. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? Joe? So, yeah, so um, there are definitely different geographical regions represented at Nicaea and other councils like this, okay? And yes, there are definitely different ideas about how we should do things. So if, even for example, we'll use, uh, we'll use three churches in Utah here. Our church and two others that I know up north. Um, we still sing hymns with the hymnal. And I can think of multiple churches that don't. There's a church I know up north who does require that you be baptized before you have communion. Based on the early church's teaching here in Utah. Um, there are other churches I can think of up, up north that have different philosophies on how we should evangelize and how we should go about evangelizing, who would disagree with other churches' methods of doing that. 
So there have always been those kinds of disagreements that we would call secondary. Yes, so, yeah, so when they got together for this, they opened their Bibles. And that's the great settler of debates, right? It doesn't settle all the debates, especially when you get to secondary issues. But when it comes to who God is, as they were discussing here, the Trinity, the Bible settles that for us. And so, does it help us to understand it comprehensively? No, you'll never comprehensively understand the Trinity. But can you look at your Bible and say, here's what we can affirm and here's what we can deny? Yes, and that's what they did. All right, well, let's keep her going here. You see, as the line continues to go north-northeast there, that there's a split. The one line becomes two. And this happened at another council. This happened in 451. The Council of Chalcedon, these councils were named after cities, okay? So Chalcedon was a city. And once again, there was another teaching that rose to prominence that caused the council to have to be formed. And there were seven ecumenical councils early on, Nicaea being the first. And you could read about all of those. I could connect you with resources if you were really wanting to dive into that. And it, uh, the Council of Chalcedon was the fourth ecumenical council. That's what first and fourth represent. First ecumenical council, fourth ecumenical council. And at the Council of Chalcedon, they were addressing a teacher named Eutychus. And there was a teaching that became known as Eutychianism. These teachings were always named after their people, and their people had weird names. So Arius developed Arianism. Eutychius developed Eutychianism. And this had to do with Jesus's nature. So not directly dealing with the Trinity, directly dealing with the person of Jesus. And so you had uh, Eutychus who could affirm Nicaea, but then when it came to the person of Jesus, he was having some disagreements with people and saying, um, you know, Jesus didn't have two natures. He had one that was a blend of deity and humanity. See, we uphold based on the Bible that he was Truly God and truly man, 100% God and 100% man. And the new natures don't come together so that he's 100% a mix of God and man. But he's truly God and truly man at the same time. Eutychus was teaching this view of blending. And so at that council, they came together again, examining what Scripture said, articulating what Scripture said in their modern language, and they condemned Eutychus and his teaching. So you have the first major break in this Catholic church and those who believe that Jesus has only one nature, a new nature that's a blend of deity and humanity, they go uh, kind of off on their own. They, they become what we know today as Coptic Christians. They're in the Middle East. They're in Egypt primarily. You hear sometimes Coptic Christians as a label in the news. That's where they came from, okay, is uh, originally from that split way back when, in 451. Now, this is an important thing to discuss because um, once you start saying that Jesus has only one nature, inevitably his deity has to be reduced. If you uphold that Jesus is 100% God in flesh, you can't start saying that he only has one nature that has humanity now mixed in because you can't mix humanity with deity, can you? I mean, by doing that, deity has to be reduced. And so that's why this debate is important, though it can be difficult for people to fully wrap their minds around it. But that's what was going on with 451 and the Council of Chalcedon. And uh, we'll talk 
more about them at the end as we kind of sum things up. But that's where the Coptic Christians come from. So they, they'll go off, we'll put them up there, and you can kind of set them aside for the moment. Now you see the rest of the church goes along with this line going, again, northeast. Yet there's another split. This one line becomes two. And this is the Great Schism in 1054 A.D. Very, very important moment in not just church history, but world history. The Great Schism of 1054. And in this schism, there was a debate about uh, mainly the, I always forget how to pronounce this, because it's Latin, the Philoki Clause, which I'll talk about in a moment, uh, papal authority and bread. One of the debates in this uh, split was, should we use leavened or unleavened bread for communion? Yeah, see what I mean about extra-biblical traditions creeping in and making things ugly? History's ugly. you got sinners involved. It's going to be ugly. Okay. Well, there was a debate on this. So Rome had uh, their leaders in the church, and they were being elevated, and they were acting like tyrants. There was debate over the Pope's place in the church, <laughs> because uh, that's basically what was happening, is you had Popes developing. And you had guys in the east who were away from Rome saying, we don't want to be under the guy in Rome. And we have our main city, which is Constantinople, and they just rah, start fighting. And then they have these two issues when it comes to bread and the philoke clause. I need to really memorize how that's pronounced. But that clause uh, is basically, should we say that the Holy Spirit comes to Christians as he is sent from the Father, or should we add the clause that says he is from the Father and the Son. They split over that. Me, that's a little crazy. Okay, I get this one. I get this one. But the, this, this one I'm talking about now, I don't get. Because Scripture says both. In, uh, Jesus says both. In the Gospel of John, he says, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send you in my name. And then he'll say, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He says it both ways, but they were getting really, really uptight about picking one, and these, you had two sides basically form, east and west, these sides formed and split. So on the one hand, you've got Constantinople, the church of the east developing, and then you've got the church in Rome. So I'm giving you uh, locations here at the top with the Coptic Christians, Middle East, down to Egypt. Here with this split, you've got Constantinople being the main city and Rome being the other main city. And out of Rome, of course, is where you get the lineage of popes. That's now where you get these priests who are really having an elevated role when it comes to ministry in the church. You eventually get the HRE, which stands for, who knows, HRE, out of Rome, the Holy Roman Empire. Okay, world history, very important. Okay, so you get this split after 1054. And you've got a, now an East Church and a West Church. You already had a Middle Eastern Coptic Church. Now you've got an East Church and a West Church. And that all started in 1054. And you can look at something like this and say, was Jesus really right when he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it? You look at that and it's just like all split up. It looks really ugly. We've got teams this is what Paul was writing to the Corinthians about. Some of you say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. These are teams. 
we need some sort of reformation, don't we? Well, let's go to this point in the timeline, 1517 AD, the beginning of what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Though you could also make an argument that in this, uh, the space between these two circles here, there were a couple other guys who were reforming, John Wycliffe and John Huss, okay, but for our purposes, we're leaving them out. We're jumping right to Martin Luther, and Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel on October 31st of 1517. Some may call it Halloween, but you can call it Reformation Day. Martin Luther said, okay, we've got to return to what the Bible says. This is a mess. This is a mess. And he gives 95 theses that he puts forth toward the Roman Catholic Church. And what he's doing is bringing... Christianity back to the Bible. So there's kind of some symbolism going on in this timeline. As these extra-biblical traditions and false doctrine creep into the church, we're getting away from Christ. We're getting away from the Bible. Well, Martin Luther says, we're bringing it back. And he starts with a list of 95 things, right? And the heart of the Reformation really was this, to break with tradition and to get back to biblical Christianity. That was Luther's goal. And the guys that followed him, that was the goal. To break with man-made religion and to get back to biblical religion. We'll contrast those here in just a moment. That's what Luther was trying to do. And if you were to boil down how he did that, you could go even more uh, reduced than the 95 Theses. You could say, look, he introduced the five solas to the church which wasn't anything new, they're given to us in Scripture, but it was a way, again, of articulating what needed to be said in our language for our time. And you don't have to write all these down if you don't want, but the five solas are sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That's what that means. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. Those were the five solas of the Reformation. And I think as we get down to this contrast between man-made religion and biblical religion, you'll see how that plays out. But that was at the heart of the Reformation. Luther led the charge, and then there was a whole group of men who came after him. John Calvin, uh, Zwingli, uh, several, several others all throughout Europe where churches were turning away from the Catholic Church and Protestantism as a movement rooted in Scripture was taking off. Well, then there was one more split. You see, as the time goes on, well, there's one more big branch that we haven't talked about, and it comes in after Martin Luther. And this was in 1536. 1536. And this had to do with Henry VIII. Who knows what big branch of religion came from Henry VIII? Anglicanism. Anglicanism came from Henry VIII. The Anglican Church. And does anyone know how it started? Why Henry VIII started a new branch of religion? Well, he wanted a divorce from one of his wives. He wanted to put away one of his wives. And he was a part of the church in Rome. He was a part of the... 
Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church with the popes and priests and everything. And he was not granted permission to divorce his wife. So he said, well, you know what? Forget you. I'm just going to start my own religion. And I'm not going to call myself the pope. I'm going to call myself the supreme head. So even today, if you go on and see, you know, what's the Anglican church about? It'll tell you the king of England is the supreme head of the church. That's the tradition that started there. So Henry VIII started the Anglican church then for that reason. So now that basically gets us, again, from a 100,000-foot view, it gets us to today. So here's how you can sum up these movements. At the top, those Coptic Christians in the Middle East, mainly, and through Egypt, Oriental Orthodox. There are different types of Orthodox churches. You could call them the Oriental Orthodox. Those ones who were broken off at 1054 and went to Constantinople, that's the Eastern Orthodox Church. Eastern Orthodox. And they have really developed into uh, what looks to us, with our eyes, to be like a Roman Catholic Church. They've got their priests, they've got their icons, they've got all their stuff going on. And there are a bunch of different types of Eastern Orthodox churches, too. There's Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox. Those are very prominent, but there are many others, too. The one that we just got here in Payson a little bit ago is Russian Orthodox, the one that has the Hershey Kiss things on top, or... Uh, you know, they call them onion domes. That's what they call them. Okay, that's a Russian Orthodox church. And they're rooted in this, all the way back to 1054. The next line, of course, is the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, that's uh, how they are mostly known today, the RCC. Very, very big organization. The next is uh, the Anglican Church, or in America, we call them the Episcopalian Church. Because in America, we obviously are no longer under England's control or the United Kingdom's control, Britain's control. So instead, um, the Anglicans here take the title Episcopalian. They're not under the supreme head, King of England, but they are from that tradition. And then finally, there at the bottom, you've got us, Protestantism. And Protestantism takes many shapes and forms, too. You have a Bible church like ours that falls under Protestantism. You have a strict Presbyterian church that baptizes babies and doesn't allow for instruments in their worship. They're Protestant. You've got charismatic churches where people are going to try to speak in tongues and they're going to wave banners and dance for three hours for their church service. That's a Protestant church. Very, very broad spectrum. But the root is back in 1517 with Martin Luther and nailing his theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Okay? Surely there's a question or two out there on all this. There's your church history timeline. What do you think? Now that, I, I think, I have to check, but I think they wouldn't refer to a head. They have a system of bishops. So what you'll have, and we'll talk about this here in a couple weeks, <clears throat> what you have in an Episcopalian system is you've got congregations, that each have a rector, okay, I'll just do a few of these for simplicity's sake, and then over the rectors, you have a bishop, and then over multiple bishops, you have an archbishop. That's kind of their system. And, and, the, uh, and the Anglican Church does this this way too, and it goes all the way up to the King of England. I would say the Episcopalian Church probably just stops short of the King of England. Yep. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? Stan. Oh. Oh. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you get your doctrine wrong, eventually your morality will follow, right? They, they have. So recently, uh, about a month ago-ish, um, the Pope came out with the statement that those who are involved in same-sex relationships can now receive a blessing from their priest. So it wasn't a statement of the Catholic Church saying gay marriage is okay. But it's confusing because before, if you were living in a homosexual relationship, the Roman Catholic Church considered it to be living in sin. Rightly so. And because they've elevated man so much, their priests are able to give blessings, which I think is not good. But they would say, look, if you're living in sin, you can't receive a blessing from one of our priests. Well, now, even though they're not saying gay marriage is okay, they're saying if you are in a homosexual relationship as an individual, you can still receive a blessing from your priest, which is almost like saying gay marriage is okay. And so, yeah, it's... It's a very like businessy strategy way of rolling out. We're going to embrace gay marriage, but this is the first step, kind of thing. Yeah, and I think other not only denominations but other movements will follow. Whole movements. I, I expect. Uh, I could totally be wrong. I don't claim to be a prophet, but I expect the Mormon Church to be taking notes on the Roman Catholic Church's rollout of this, and act and kind of doing their own rollout accordingly later on down the road when. Some of the older guys die. That's my anticipation. Mandy. Yep. So it was starting before that, which is part of the beef that the Eastern side had with them. So you can think back to uh, Jerome. He lived in the 500s, 400s or 500s. He's the one who gave us the Latin Vulgate. He translated the, the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. He was considered a pope at that time. So they had popes there for a while where it was like the bishop, whoever was the bishop in Rome was like the first among equals. He was the bishop of bishops. And just over time, that, the authority keeps going up and up and up and up. And the eastern side is saying, no, we like you know, the bishop in Constantinople, not the bishop in Rome. And then, rah, rah, rah. Yeah, that's a very scholarly way of describing what happened. Okay, Joe, did you have a... Yes. Oh, yeah. And that's nothing new. That's nothing new. And eventually it ends in death. Proverbs says there's, the way, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. Look at the United Methodist Church right now, if you haven't followed that. Um, when I was a wee lad, they were starting to dabble with um, ordaining women in the pastorate, and they eventually did that. Um, and then it went to embracing homosexuality, and they eventually did that. And now they've come out as a church and said, we officially accept homosexuality, and if you don't like it, you can leave. Well, guess what? A ton of churches are leaving. A ton of United Methodist churches are saying, we're done. And so they're looking for a new denominational home, and eventually the United Methodist Church will cease to exist. That's how that goes. Taylor? I prefer you call me Archbishop. No. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry, Taylor, go ahead. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Yeah. 
Good. That is... Taylor, you ask great questions. But I have a little bit of bad news. We're going to get to that on pages 51 and 52. Okay. We are going there. But you got to keep coming back. And it's a great question. Now, I'll give you the short answer, because that's going to be a few weeks. The short answer is the Word of God as upheld by the congregation. Okay. So... Um, we have a system of government in our church that does not look like this. Um, we are essentially congregationalists. So you've got congregations here under the rule of multiple levels of authority in an Episcopalian system. In a congregational system, you take all that out, you don't need those, you're left with that. <clears throat> and now the congregation is equal to the leadership in the congregation. The congregation's leadership comes out of its own congregation. It doesn't come from the outside imposed on the congregation. It comes from within the congregation. And so you have elders and deacons who lead in the church in a two-way relationship where there's instruction, leadership, guidance that goes this way and accountability and um, installation into those offices that goes the other way. It goes both ways. And we'll get into that more later on. But basically, um, you all are my boss. There's another way to think about that. I could be fired by my boss at any time, right? There's no one on the outside who comes in. And again, going back to the United Methodist Church, they wouldn't do this, just to use them as an example. They, would, they send people, their organization is over their churches and sends people on assignments. And they would send me to a church and say, you're going to be there for three years. And then we're going to move you. Congregation is just there, okay? Uh, that is extra-biblical, and I would even say anti-biblical. But we'll get into that in a few weeks. Other thoughts or questions here? Dean? Yeah, for sure. So, and, and even, actually, maybe even more similar to Roman Catholic. So, Roman Catholic, they use different words, but kind of the same thing. They've got cardinals. Uh, not the ones in St. Louis that are beloved by my household, but they've got cardinals and um, they call them bishops and all that stuff that work their way up to the Pope. In the Eastern Orthodox Church and Oriental Orthodox, and etc., they have essentially the equivalent of a Pope. They don't call him the Pope, but their structure works up to him. For the um, Anglican Church, for example, right below the King of England is the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the Archbishop of Archbishops. But he still is not the supreme head because the supreme head is the king. And so with like Orthodox, they'll have you know, their structure and they get up and they've got all their archbishops or whatever, and they still have an archbishop of archbishops or a priest of priests or whatever, who's like the leader. There's definitely continuing revelation stuff going on, yeah. And yeah, what I say is the voice of God kind of mentality. Uh, Eastern Orthodox, too, you really get into icons. There's an article that the Trib did of our Russian Orthodox Church here in town. Um, you should read through that sometime. Just Google Russian Orthodox Church Payson, St. Louis Tribune, or uh, not St. Louis Tribune, <laughs> Salt Lake Tribune. Um, i got St. Louis on the mind now. Uh, and basically, in their interview, the guy, the rector, whatever his name is, you know, overseeing that, gets really into the icon stuff. And is like, yeah, we've got this artifact from this year and this one from this year, and you, you can go touch it. So silly. April and then Joe.
No. There, there was a role she played in the Anglican church when there wasn't a king, but there was a queen. I don't really know how they sort all that out, but Anglican. Yeah. And there's a king now. Yes. He is the supreme head of the Anglican church. Yep. Exciting for them, huh? <laughs> Joe? What, yeah. what criteria, essentially, should we use to determine which church is a good church? Is that kind of what you're asking? How do we know which one's a good one? Yep, and you did. <laughs> yes, and isn't this the Joseph Smith story? I mean, this is it. This is, and again, I, I don't want to just bring this up all the time, but I think it's relevant because we live here. This will get weaponized against us. This history will be weaponized against us. And if you don't know how to think through this and how to respond to this, you might be left like, uh, yeah, that looks ugly. I don't know what to say. And Joseph Smith's story was, which one should I join? Well, God says none. They're all bad. And I think that's a really important thing to bring up when we get into conversations with people who are trying to evangelize us around here. Say, well, your founder said, I'm corrupt. All right, so that's important to point out. But yeah, when it comes to which one do I choose, it's based on the Bible. It should be. Because what you're going to do is rely on your authority. And if your authority is your own independent pee-picking brain, then you're going to say, well, which one would I have fun in? Or which one makes me feel good? Or which one, you know, fill in the blank? And you'll kind of go that way. If your authority, maybe you were raised in a religious tradition like Roman Catholicism, and your authority then is a system of man, and you say, well, the Catholic Church has been around for so long and has the succession of popes, how could they ever be wrong? Then you're going to pick the Catholic Church because that's your authority. But if your authority is the Bible, you're going to pick a church that aligns itself with the Bible. And that's the way it should be. Yeah? Well... Sometimes uh, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, can he? I shouldn't say sometimes he can. He can always do that. Sometimes he does. And sometimes we end up in a church that is biblical, not because of our own choosing, but because God did it. For instance, I grew up next door to a non-denominational Bible church like ours. That's a very solid church. I didn't step foot in there for the first 10 years we lived there. My parents didn't go there. We just shared a property line. I never went. And then when my mom died, it was those people that led me to the Lord. I've wondered before, what if that would have been an Eastern Orthodox church? What if that would have been, you know, a, a charismatic church that believed that we could still give prophecies today? I can't do the what if game because God is sovereign and I know what he did and I'm thankful that he did it. That's where I end up. Other thoughts, questions here? Taylor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, Wayne, Wayne Bussian will often remind us a church isn't a building, it's the people. And, and that's important to remember because um, some people will say, well, church is just me alone in the woods. Well, you're a person, you're not a people. 
<laughs> okay? Uh, and we'll get into how to define church, too, later on. But, yeah, the church is a collection of people. And that could be in a house. That could be at a restaurant. That could be in a building like this. It's the people. All right, well, let's finish up with a few thoughts here. <clears throat> um, one, especially based on what we just looked at, just because a, an institution labels itself as a Christian church, that does not mean it is a Christian church, all right? want to communicate that to you clearly, and uh, I'll give you some reasons why here in just a moment. Wayne Grudem says, when there is an assembly of people who take the name Christian, but consistently teach that people cannot believe their Bibles, indeed, a church whose pastor, a congregation... What's the one I'm supposed to say here? Oh, Pastor And. And, yeah, that's what you're saying. Okay, indeed, a church whose pastor and congregation seldom read their Bibles or pray in any meaningful way and do not believe or perhaps even understand the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone, then how can we say that this is a true church, right? And there are people who gather out there who don't understand salvation is by grace through faith, who reject that, who reject reading the Bible, who reject taking the Bible seriously. How can you call those people a church? So let's finish with this, and we'll start with this next week. We've got five minutes left here, and I'll just go ahead and put them all up so you can see them. Here's the difference between a man-made religion and a biblical religion. So a man-made religion will focus on traditions. You see this so, so much. And we'll even talk about this a bit in the sermon today as we talk about art and music. Traditions can be so elevated to the status of an idol, and you see it a lot in man-made religion. Whereas biblical religion is focused on Scripture. Not tradition, but Scripture. Okay, so we've done, you know, so, such and such for the last 200 years. Okay, but what does Scripture say? If Scripture doesn't say we should, and if Scripture, uh, you know, kind of leaves it open, well, then it can be changed. Tradition is not God. Tradition is not Scripture. Scripture is what's at the heart. Man-made religion will feature priests and other human authorities and will focus a lot on that. Uh, Roman Catholic Church, for example, you want forgiveness from God? Go talk to your priest. Oh, I mean, isn't that like painful to even think about? Whereas biblical religion focuses on one priest, Jesus, our great high priest. And we answer the question, how do I get forgiveness from God? Go to Jesus, and you can go right now from wherever you are in the world. Go right to Jesus, and you can get forgiveness. Man-made religion will focus a lot on sacraments, which is either obtaining your salvation or maintaining your salvation, either acquiring it or, or keeping it. Where, whereas biblical religion focuses on grace, salvation is by grace through faith. God's grace, salvation is a gift. The fact that you continue to have salvation, even though you wander through this life and sometimes sin in really, really disastrous ways, the fact that your salvation remains is a testimony to God's grace. We don't focus on sacraments to maintain salvation. Man-made religion will focus a lot on works, kind of the same idea. You work your way to build your own righteousness, whereas the Bible teaches that salvation comes by the righteousness of God that's granted to you on the basis of faith. That's Philippians chapter 3. Your righteousness comes to you through the vehicle of faith. It's Christ's righteousness, the very righteousness of God that is applied to you by faith alone. And finally, man-made religion will focus on this hierarchy of men, as I was just drawing out on the board there. And, ooh, you're the Archbishop of Canterbury? 
so, I, uh, I'm just so amazed to meet you. Or go to the Pope, let me kiss your ring, uh, let me kiss your ring. Crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Biblical religion focuses on the glory of God who made those people and made that ring that's on his finger, the creator of all things, and him getting all, all the glory alone. That we would kiss the feet of King Jesus, not some pope. Okay? So those are some big distinctions between man-made religion and biblical religion. A minute or two left, final thoughts or questions here. Brandon. Yes. And I think these are just, it's a work of Satan. And Satan doesn't have a lot of plays in his playbook. He can just he wear different hats a little bit, you know, where it's always going to focus on these kinds of things. But the traditions will be different, but they're still traditions. The hierarchy of men will be different, but it's still a hierarchy of men. You know, it's kind of the same stuff in every one of them, uh, just wearing a different coat. Joe? I thank God he brought you here too. So, so thankful. And it's all by grace alone, isn't it? Where when we stumble into a situation like this that is clearly for our good and God's glory, we know it wasn't just luck. There's no such thing as luck. This is the work of the sovereign God who chose to do it because he loves us. We can be so thankful. All right, well, let me pray, and then we'll move on to the next thing. Father, we do thank you so much for your grace and your sovereign care over us. And we ask that you would give us a, uh, a great time of fellowship as we continue on to the next service, that we would sing well today, that we would have music in our hearts, and that we would honor you from the heart, that you'd be lifted up in us. God, we thank you so much for the way you have built your church, even this local church that we're a part of. Help us today to honor you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.